The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. All right, good morning. Let's see, the scripture reading for today is Matthew 5, 9, so feel free to flip there if you please. All right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Today, obviously, is the second Sunday of Advent, and as we just heard during the lighting of the Advent wreath, which can I just say at an outdoor service, I'm really impressed these candles are still lit. Scott, amazing job lighting those amidst the wind. But as we heard... Uh, This week of Advent, it bears the theme of love. And in the context of Advent, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, we look back, Advent looks back on Christ's first coming, his first Advent, which happened because of love. We read, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. Christ came in his first Advent. Because of love. But the season not only looks back to that first advent, it also looks forward to Christ's second, which will also happen because of love. Revelation 21 and verse 5 tells us that Jesus himself will one day proclaim that he is making all things new. The work begun in his first advent will be brought to completion in his second. All out of love. Advent is a season of love. And what I want us to see this morning is that one of the ways the love of God supremely expresses itself is through peacemaking. Christ's advents, I just said, happened because of love. but, But what shape does that love take? What, How is that love expressed. I mean, in his first advent, did angels not proclaim in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Out of love, God sent his son to make peace with his people. One of the supreme ways that the love of God expresses itself is through peacemaking, and not just in Christ's first advent, But is the same thing not true also of Christ's second advent? He will come again out of love. And what shape will that love take? How will it be expressed? Will it not be through a restoration of perfect peace? Shalom. That's that's the Hebrew word for peace. And it's the Hebrew concept that stands behind all of the New Testament's talk of peace. And shalom, it's much more than what we normally mean by the simple word peace. Peace for us usually just means some kind of absence of conflict. Shalom is much more about the presence of something. It's about the presence of all all wrongs made right. The, The simplest definition I could put on shalom for us is everything as it should be. Everything as it should be, as it was created to be. Everything redeemed, set right. And Revelation 21 proclaims that's what Christ will come again to do. He'll come again to make everything new, bring shalom, bring peace, make everything as it should be. Out of love, Christ will come again to bring peace. 
One of the supreme ways the love of God expresses itself is through peacemaking. Do you see? Do you see how the season of Advent teaches us that's true of God? But our beatitude that we heard read this morning, Matthew 5, 9, teaches us that this should also be true of God's people, of us, of me and you. If the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, one of the supreme ways that love should express itself is through peacemaking. Read it again with me. Matthew 5 and verse 9. Blessed, or if you've been with us through the entire series, you know that we think the best way to translate that is truly joyful. Truly joyful are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's a crazy statement for Jesus to make in his first century Jewish context. At least it would have been to a particular group of Jews known as the zealots. You remember these people? You heard of these people? Jesus would actually choose one of them named Simon in order to be his disciple, Simon the the zealot. The, The zealots were a group of Jews who hated the fact that they were under the control of the Roman Empire. And they hated it so much that they thought violent rebellion was the was the solution. They thought that through violent rebellion they could overthrow Rome, and in this way they would demonstrate we're loyal sons of God. They would literally use that verbiage. That's the way they talked about this. Through violent rebellion we demonstrate we're loyal sons of God, and we can oust Rome and finally find true joy by establishing God's kingdom. But here comes Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. Taking a seat as the authoritative king of the kingdom. And he says, you want to be called a son of God? That title doesn't belong to those who make war. It belongs to those who make peace. Peacemakers are kingdom people who will experience the true joy of their king. A zealot hearing that has got to be asking, how can that possibly be true? Like, like, I don't know, I can't even envision what that means. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And, and how are they going to be, the, those are going to be people that get run over. How are they going to be people that ultimately find the true joy that is only found in the kingdom of God? Those two questions are the questions that I personally am left asking when I read Matthew 5, 9. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? And why are the peacemakers truly joyful? Those are the two questions I want to try to spend the rest of our time together this morning answering. So we're going to take them one at a time and spend about 99.9% of our time just on question number one. So question number one, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? The second half of the Beatitude actually gives us a clue when it says that peacemakers will be called sons of God. In... In Jewish culture, the the phrase son of, it it didn't have to always be used in a biological sense. Like a son of so-and-so didn't necessarily have to mean, oh, well, that's that person's child. It could be used to point out shared character. Like if you're like someone, then you are a son of. That per- we actually still use that phrase this way. We have some son of a blank phrases. We just typically use them as insults. I'll let you figure out what those are. 
But for someone to be called a son of God means they reflect the character of God. They reflect the love of God. And one of the supreme shapes that the love of God takes is peacemaking. So we've got to ask, what does his peacemaking look like? Like, like if our peacemaking is supposed to reflect his, then we have to know what does it mean for us, for our God to be a peacemaking God? We've got to know that first and foremost. What does it mean for God to be a peacemaker? Then and only then can we know what it means for us to reflect that and us to be a peacemaker. So what does it mean for our God to be a peacemaking God? And, and, and notice I said peacemaking God, not peacekeeping. Peacekeeping. Making. Matthew 5, 9 right here, it, when it talks about peacemakers, it's not describing people who are peaceable, who, who just don't try to make waves, who just try to keep the peace. No, it's describing people who will make whatever waves are necessary in the pursuit of making peace, because that's what our God does. He will make whatever waves necessary to proactively pursue peacemaking. Is that not what this season of Advent is all about? How many waves did the incarnation make? Waves whose ripple effect is still reverberating around the globe to this day. We're in a parking lot because of those waves this morning. The entire season of Advent is a thing because our God is willing to make waves to proactively pursue peace. Hundreds of years before Christ's first advent ever even took place, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this in Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7. He said, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In other words, this child's being born to pursue bringing peace. If you don't think that's what that means, all you got to do is read the next verse, Isaiah 9 and verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Christ proactively came in the pursuit of peace. Our God is a peacemaking God. What does that look like? I'll just give you three things. Can't exhaust anything in scripture. I'm just going to try and give you a little bit of a picture. Give you three things. Through Christ... God has made peace personally, publicly, and globally. Through Christ, here's what it means for God to be peacemaking God. Through Christ, God's made peace personally, publicly, and globally. First, personally. In other words, between himself and his people. He's made peace personally between himself and his people. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? Romans 5.8, just a few verses later, is going to call this a demonstration of God's love. Because God so loved the world, he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, taking on the wrath that it deserved, so that we have peace with God. Do, do you see one of the supreme shapes the love of God takes? It's peacemaking. Our God is a peacemaking God, and he makes peace personally between himself and you, me, his people. Through Christ, God has made peace personally. 
Secondly, he's done it publicly. Through Christ, God has made peace publicly. In other words, among his people. Not just between himself and his people, but among his people, person to person, between you and me. He has made peace. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul looks at Jew and Gentile believers. Jew and Gentile, these, these are people who had lived their entire life with ethnic division and hostility between them. And in Ephesians 2, Paul describes the effect of Christ's death on those hostile relationships. Listen to what he says, Ephesians 2.14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Verse 15, he goes on. So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In short, the Apostle Paul is saying, through the death of Jesus, or through, Jesus, through his death, Jesus has brought us to God, which brings us to one another. You see how that works? We're, we're both being drawn to the same location. So not only are we being drawn closer to God, but closer to one another. We're both being drawn to the same location. We're being drawn by the same love, which takes the same shape. Peacemaking. Not just between us and God personally, but between one another. Publicly, our God is a peacemaking God. And he makes peace through Christ personally, publicly, and third, he does it globally. In other words, with all of creation. Just between him and his people, or between his people, but he does it with all of creation. He does it globally. Colossians 1 and verse 19. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, that's through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things. All things. Not just people, all of creation. Everything damaged by sin. Through Christ, God is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Through the cross, Christ has purchased peace for all of creation. That, that he will bring to completion. He's purchased peace for all of creation. He will bring it to completion to the point that Revelation 21 can call all of creation nothing else but a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth has passed away. That's not destruction and replacement language. That's death and resurrection language. That's the same language used to describe what God has done to you and me. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. It's passed away. The new has come. He says the same thing's going to happen with all of creation. Through Christ, God has and will redeem all of creation. Bring shalom, perfect peace. This is what it means that our God is a peacemaking God. He brings peace personally, publicly, and globally. And so do we. So do we. Sons of God reflect the peacemaking character of God. Not by being mere peacekeepers, no, but like God, proactively pursuing, being peacemakers. We are to be a people 
who proactively pursue peace. Psalm 34 and verse 14 says it really explicitly. It says, seek peace and pursue it. Doesn't get much plainer than that. And as we go throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see that command expounded upon and explained, especially, shades, especially when Jesus talks about our enemies and those who sin against us. Shades, how in the world are we going to be a people who proactively pursue making such peace as that? It's got to be empowered. We cannot do this on our own. It's got to be empowered. Which is exactly what we read all throughout the entirety of the scriptures that our God empowers us to do the very things that he has called us to do. The Holy Spirit of God has poured out the love of God in our hearts. And that love takes a shape as it comes out of us. And one of the shapes it supremely takes is that of peacemaking. Peacemaking is a fruit, it is a work, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Galatians 5 and verse 22 says the fruit, the result of the Spirit's work in you, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Peace. The Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God in our hearts helps that love to take this shape, one of peacemaking. What does such empowered peacemaking look like coming through us. I'll give you three things. Through Christ, we're empowered to make peace personally, publicly, and globally. Surprised, right? Like, do you see? As sons of God, daughters of God, children of God, as sons of God, our peacemaking reflects that of our Father. So we are empowered to make peace personally, Publicly and globally. Take those one at a time very quickly. First, we're empowered to make peace personally. In other words, between ourselves and others. When we're at odds with one another, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to personally, in our personal relationships, pursue being peacemakers. First John 4 and verse 20. You want to spend an afternoon feeling really convicted? Spend an afternoon with First John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. It's like, tell us how you really feel, John. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from God. Whoever loves God must also love God. His brother, and we have seen again and again and again this morning, one of the supreme shapes this love takes is peacemaking. You don't believe me? The Apostle Paul says so explicitly in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. He says that bearing with one another in love, here's what that looks like. It looks like being eager, eager. That's proactive pursuit. Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, got to be empowered by the Spirit, Being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we have true love for God that's been poured out in our hearts, it pours out of us in our personal relationships with one another, and it takes the shape of being eager, proactively pursuing to make peace. 
The Apostle Paul will actually warn us in 1 Corinthians 11 not to take communion, not to take the Lord's Supper when we aren't proactively pursuing peace with one another. Why? Because the Lord's Supper is a meal that declares we have peace with God and we have peace with one another, his body. It's not just a personal meal. That means because of Jesus' work, I've got peace with God so I can commune with God. It's a horizontal meal. It's a corporate meal. That's why we take it together. When we gather together, it's a shared, it's a family meal. And when we all take of this, even though they're in separate little cellophane cups, we're saying we all eat of the same body and drink of the same blood because we are one in Christ. That's the confession that we are making. And Paul says, if that's not true, don't do it. Do, do you plan to take the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes? Only do so if you have first proactively pursued making peace between yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Shades, through Christ, we are empowered to make peace personally. Personally. Second, through Christ, we are empowered to make peace publicly. In other words, among others. So when we see situations among other people where they are not at peace, we are empowered to be peacemakers in those situations. And please hear me. None of this means that all of our efforts at peacemaking will all be 100% successful. But the attempt at peace, spirit-empowered peacemaking is not prohibited by the fact of anyone's refusal. And we are empowered by the Spirit not to just make peace within our personal relationship, but to pursue making peace among others that we see at odds with, with one another. Yes, we start with our brothers and sisters at Christ when we see that there is not peace between them. We pursue making peace. Uh, later on in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 18, he's going to actually lay out principles. Jesus will lay out principles for what it looks like. When, when you don't have peace between you and another brother, here's the process that you should go through. And included in those principles are when you see brothers and sisters that don't have peace. Here's how you help them along. Here's how you, Peacemaking is complicated. Each and every situation has a million unique factors within it. And the results of peacemaking won't even always look the same. But that's why in Matthew 18, Jesus lays out the principle of how much we need the church and church leadership to come alongside us in wisdom and to help us discern what our pursuit of peace looks like in every given situation. So we are to make peace amongst not our only our personal relationships, but also amongst one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But peacemaking actually goes even further than that. We don't just pursue proactively making peace amongst our brothers and sisters. We pursue making peace amongst all people. All people. First and foremost, we do that by proclaiming to them the peace that Christ has made. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. We make peace among others, first and foremost, by publishing, proclaiming the good news of peace, that true, forever, full joy in God may be found because of Jesus. This, this Isaiah says, gives us beautiful feet. 
It's like a messenger bringing the good news that peace has finally been achieved to a city that's been war-torn. We bring news to the world that peace has finally been achieved because of what God has done. We bring the good news of the gospel. Paul, Paul pictures this for us beautifully in Ephesians chapter 6, a passage you might be familiar with. It's where he describes the armor of God. And when he gets to the feet, he says it like this. He says, And putting on shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In other words, wear these shoes, shoes that are basically labeled the gospel of peace. Everywhere you go, you are proclaiming and publishing this gospel. The gospel, that's the armor for your feet. It's a funny picture for armor indeed, because this is not armor that Paul says is used for making war. It's armor used for making peace. Shoes of the gospel of peace. We make peace among others through proclamation. But it doesn't stop there either. We do it through proclamation first and foremost, but then also through demonstration. In other words, everywhere that our feet carry us to proclaim this peace, we should also demonstrate that we actually believe and embrace this peace in our own lives. Micah 6.8, another passage you may be familiar with, it puts it most beautifully, I think. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? When we walk humbly with our God, then wherever that walk takes us, wherever our feet go, there are demonstrations that we love kindness, demonstrations that we do justice. Is this not what the previous Beatitudes have indeed already shown us? That the truly joyful God's people, they demonstrate meekness, gentleness. They demonstrate righteousness. They demonstrate mercy. In other words, yes, we proclaim peace, but we don't just proclaim it. We make it. We do it publicly among others. Are you known as a peacemaker publicly among others, like in your workplace? Is this how your coworkers would describe you? Peacemaker. In schools? How about in political arenas where we share our political opinions? Would we be described by others as peacemakers? As meek, gentle? Our favorite political programs on both the radio and on television are anything but displays of meekness and gentleness. You want to talk about being salt and light in our world. Put some meekness and gentleness and peacemaking in the politics and watch Jesus rain down. What about in interacting with strangers this Christmas season as we go through the hectic holidays, as, as we interact with sales associates? Will we be peacemakers as we interact with the poor, with the downcast? Where, where is God calling you to pursue peace publicly shades he empowers you to do that this is not pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get busy with that 
This is put your faith and trust in the God who has first made peace with you and empowers you by his Holy Spirit to pour his peace out towards others. We are empowered to make peace personally, publicly, and third, finally, globally, meaning with all creation. We are empowered to make peace globally with all creation. Yes, I do literally mean with terra firma creation. Romans 8, verses 19 to 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation care is not something we talk about very much, indeed not nearly enough in theology. Likely because our thoughts about creation care have been shaped more by our political imagination than by biblical realities. We feel like talking about creation care places us on one side of the aisle or the other. But scripture is clear from page one. God made all things good. And our role in creation was steward and caretaker. That's a role that was broken by sin. And the passage that I just read from, Romans 8, it declares that creation itself cannot wait for the day that all of that is redeemed, for the day when creation itself will be set free from corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All creation will be fully and finally made new. Shades, do we live right now like that's true? Like we believe that one day we will be fully and finally made new. And we know that to live right now like that's true means we pursue that newness. That one day will be brought to completion. Do we live right now like it's also true that one day all of creation will be fully and finally made new? Do we pursue that newness until one day it is brought to completion? Do we live caring for creation? demonstrating with our lives that we believe through Jesus Christ God has accomplished and will bring shalom to everything. I imagine most of us are sitting here thinking, what does that look like? Because that's how disconnected from creation we are. What, what does it even look like to live demonstrating care for creation? It, Shades, it can look like so many different things that we don't have time to cover in detail this morning. For some good ideas... Pick up and read some Wendell Berry. Pick up and read some J.R.R. Tolkien. It is good for more things than fantasy entertainment. Talk about some great theology of creation care. Or, or pick up Doug and Jonathan Moo's literal biblical theology of creation care. But if you have no time to read any of that, the basic principle is this. The basic principle of beginning to pursue creation care is that it looks like caring instead of neglecting. We've become, like most of us, most of, and I'm preaching to myself right here, Shades. Most of us just don't even care. We neglect creation altogether. We're so disconnected from it, thus we neglect it. When we were made, created to care for it. This is part, it's not the whole, it's by no means the whole. But it is part of how we reflect our peacemaking father. Go, go read or even sing the lyrics to that old beautiful hymn. This is my father's world. 
and learn what it means to reflect the peacemaking of our Father through creation care. We are empowered to make peace personally, publicly, and globally. That's at least, it's at least a small picture. It's not the whole, but it's a small picture of what it looks like to be a peacemaker. But why does that lead to true joy? It's our second question that we're going to answer very quickly. We know, we answered question one, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Now question number two, very quickly, what are the, why, excuse me, why are the peacemakers truly joyful? Why are the peacemakers truly joyful? The answer is given to us very clearly. Look at it one more time. Matthew 5 and verse 9. Truly joyful are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall be called sons of God. Not they earn the right to be called sons of God. This isn't get busy with your peacemaking so you can earn the right to be called a son of God. No, it's not that they earn the right to be called sons of God. It's that they're recognized as what they already are. That's the reason they're making peace, because they're sons of God. It's a recognition of the fact that they do reflect the character of their father. It says they shall be called, recognized as sons of God. By who? Who's going to call them that? Who's going to recognize that? We could say others around them, and that's true. Just a few verses later in Matthew 5.16, we read, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Others will see your good works, like peacemaking, and they'll give glory to your Father because you'll, they'll recognize you as his son, as his true child. That's true, but I don't think that's the main emphasis of the promise in Matthew 5 and verse 9. I don't think that's the main emphasis because all of the promises in all of the Beatitudes ultimately have to do with the kingdom of God. Thus, this recognition of our sonship must ultimately be coming from the king of the kingdom. This is God doing the recognizing. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 declares that this is the greatest shape the love of God takes. It says this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. I love the old King Jimmy right here. It says, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. When I turned 16 and uh, I began to drive around Albany, Georgia, I would get stopped very regularly by people in town, and they would ask me, are you Tony Hafe's son? My dad was a minister at a large church in town. He worked with senior adults. He did lots of funerals and came into contact with lots of people in the midst of hurting situations. He worked alongside of hospice and would often be in hospital rooms with people he'd never met who didn't have a church home, and he'd just walk in. And it was like peace entered into that room. By the time he left, he was like their best friend. It's a gifting I will never understand. But he had been with so many hundreds, if not thousands of people in the midst of death, dying, hurt, confusion. And I would get stopped and asked, because we do bear some physical resemblance. 
And they would ask, are you Tony Hafe's son? I would say, yeah. And they'd say, he's a good man. It made me feel so good, so much pride to be Tony Hafe's son. But do you know what left all of that in the dust? Anytime my father looks at me and says, that's my son. Because he is not speaking about our physical resemblance at all. But about the condition of my heart and it reflecting the best things in his and speaking about his pride and his joy in me. That's my son. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is why peacemakers are truly joyful. Because peace was first made with them by their father. It's the shape his love takes in Jesus. It's the shape his love takes this Advent season as it is given to you. Shades, will you come and find true, full, forever joy in Jesus? John chapter 1 and verse 12 makes this promise to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Out of love, he came to bring you peace. And in love, he will come again to bring that peace to completion. Full and final shalom. Shades, this Advent, hear and heed the invitation. Truly joyful are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons. God.